Hey, today, uh, I'm excited. We're starting a brand new series, The Path of Life. For the next seven weeks uh, here at Covenant, we're going to be working through uh, just these various kind of common things each and every one of us struggles through, whether we know it or not. And so what we're going to do for seven weeks is, is sort of just plow through one after another. And, and what this series is sort of based on uh, is what are known as the seven deadly sins. Now, the Bible doesn't call them that, and that's okay. Uh, and yet it's something that each and every one of us sort of, at some point in life, we're going to stumble across each of these things on the path. So that what they sort of represent is like the potholes of life. And so what we're aiming for is the path of life. And not the potholes that lead to broken down uh, and broken up and all of those other things we don't really want to be. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to hear from uh, various elders and staff members, and we're going to get to hear a multitude of voices. They're going to present all these things from different perspectives, sloth or diligence. Are you going to choose wrath or patience, pride or humility, envy or kindness? And so every single one of these issues has kind of a corresponding virtue that's available to us uh, should we want to lean into that. And so I'm excited about that. I'm excited about uh, just the, the various voices that we're going to get to hear from. And uh, today is actually your lucky day. So if you were uh, so inclined and you wanted to run through all the seven deadly sins, I go, oh, gosh, I wonder which one is today. I'm super excited. You know what you're super excited to hear is today is lust. Good job. Way to go. You're not as excited as I am. Um, so before you start uh, squirming in your seat in agonizing awkwardness, um, here's what I'm going to say. Consider this. What if lust, um, a word that we relate only to hushed topics, cover your kids' ears, um, what if the way that Jesus uses this term is to tackle something much bigger? And so uh, I think he is going to do that. And so instead of me telling you that, let's just see what Jesus has to say. We'll put it up on the screen here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus is giving uh, sort of this giant sermon, and I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And you're going, this doesn't sound at all uplifting like you promised. Here's the context. Jesus is giving this great sermon, and and what he's doing sort of systematically, he's walking into all these sort of, if you imagine uh, all of religion being like a house with rooms, he's walking into one room at a time and just sort of imploding the room. And he goes to the next room and he implodes that room. And so right here, he's, he's sort of in the middle of dismantling religion itself. He's taking on religion and religious people and religious culture, and he's just sort of saying, it's not working. This whole culture that we live in the same sort of culture about doing more and looking cleaner and acting holy and trying to pretend you're someone that you probably aren't on the inside. He said it isn't about that. And so Jesus is walking into those rooms of performance and he said it's not about how you look. It's not about how you perform because those things don't always match reality. What, what reality is found, it's in, found inside of us. And so he's being really hard on folks that are in a culture where behavior is sort of everything. It's what we're graded on. And you and I live in a culture that's taken what he lived in and sort of supersized it because social media allows us to create identities out of our behavior and put them on display for everyone else and go, see, I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. And yet I I can't imagine a single person here that would agree to have the 24-7 camera put on them or, or worse than that, put on our thoughts and our hearts because none of us quite measure up. We wouldn't want people to know all the other things that we don't put out there for others to consume. So Jesus is saying that decent behavior doesn't showcase true righteousness, which is a hard thing to hear in a culture where we all kind of go, well, yeah, but, but it sort of does, right? And what he says, he uses a, 
a figure of speech called a, a synecdoche. And he, he says, the hand represents the body. So this means that the one little thing actually represents a much larger thing. So when he says, gouge out your eye and throw it away, he's not literally telling you to gouge your eye out and throw it away. That would sort of be irrational, and none of us would have any eyes left. What he's saying is, the eye represents something. The eye represents part of the whole, the heart and the mind. And so this is sort of the gateway. And so if this is a problem, what you need to do is get rid of the the heart and mindset that allows you to stumble into this world like that. And if your hand is the issue, then then get rid of the, the physical thing in you that creates the sin. So right here in front of these people, he's standing in front of the teachers of the law, he's standing in front of his followers, people who are just kind of curious, people who aren't really sure what he's doing, but they're interested because he's walking through just blowing stuff up left and right. And in front of them, what he's doing is he's actually in real time updating the moral code. The teachers of the law are there and they must just be aghast when he's saying these things here's how to think of it. Let's say you, so you got pulled over and the officer says you were going 78 and a 70. And you go, no, I'm, I'm almost sure I was going 68 and a 70. I actually have a way of tracking my own speed and I know for sure I wasn't. And he goes, well, I got you at 78. So, you know, tell it to the judge. And you go, I plan on it. And so instead of just paying the ticket, which is what you would normally do because you got caught red-handed, you instead say, I'm going to go contest this in front of the judge. And so you walk into the judge And the officer is there and he goes, look, I got him on the gun going 78 and a 70. And you go, but I have this other proof and I don't know what that is. And so just pretend you have it. And I was actually going 68, see? And you say, I may have been in a hurry and I may, you know, I may have been going faster earlier, but I got this text. And so I was texting on the highway. And so, you know, when you text, your speed kind of goes down. So I definitely wasn't speeding then. And the the judge is like, this is not good. And and you say, so I'm sure at this moment I wasn't speeding. And the judge goes, well, this is going to be really hard to do. I don't know what to do here. And Jesus, this is, this is going to get wild. Jesus pops into the courtroom, okay? So now we're getting a little uh, fantasy happening. So Jesus pops into the courtroom, and here's what he says. Jesus walks in, and he goes, yeah, here's what I'm going to do. No matter his speed, he just admitted it. We all know it's true. His intention was impatience. His intention was to be speeding. His intention was impatience. He was driving selfishly. We all know that. His heart wasn't going the speed limit. His heart was racing through the world. And the judge goes, what in the world are you talking about? And Jesus goes, I got an idea. No fine. Throw the ticket out. Throw him in jail. Everything's done. Who's offended at this? If you're the one getting the ticket, you're like, well, I'm offended because worst case scenario, I was going to pay like $120 fine and now I'm in jail. And the judge is offended because this is his courtroom and Jesus came in and just said, yeah, your laws don't really work. I'm going to judge something else that you can't judge. And so everybody's offended. The judge is offended. The perpetrator is offended. The lawyers are offended. The officer is offended. How am I supposed to uphold a law? that I can't read. It's your heart. How, that doesn't make any sense. And everybody would be offended. This is what Jesus is doing in real time. And the teachers of the law, the judges are there, the lawyers are there, everybody's there. And he goes, hey, all those laws you guys keep, worthless. Doesn't matter. And so the lawgiver is offended. And the rule follower, the follower of who, who's like, maybe I'll look into this Jesus character, but he's living his life right on the outside. He goes, I'm offended too, because now you're telling me all my hard work's not worth it. And so Jesus is just offending everyone. He's telling the lawgiver, your laws are insufficient. He's telling the religious person that you are failing even with a perfect score. He's not just rethinking the way that the law works. He's also rethinking all kinds of things. And so if you keep reading in Matthew, you go home and you go, I'm curious what that is. You're going to see he says an eye for an eye is what it says. But, but I tell you this, love your enemies. And people go, wait, 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 how is that justice? Love your enemies, wait. So he's rethinking law, he's rethinking justice. He's just upending the moral code everywhere he goes. 
What's interesting about this is Jesus is growing in expectation of us. He, he's raising, he's not, for people go, oh, he's getting rid of the law, so the, the bar must be lowered. And what Jesus is actually doing, he's raising the bar. He goes, no, I have a greater expectation. It isn't just if you behave rightly, but what's inside of you? What are you thinking? What's your heart say? What are your thoughts? And that feels like the bar just got raised a few notches. And so the, the danger here is that the religious among us, the people more wired to rule following, will go, okay, well, so Jesus created a new rule. So I just have to do like, I just have to try harder and be better. And what Jesus is doing in tandem, if you look at the entirety of his life, not only is he raising expectations, but he's also raising grace everywhere he goes. Because the expectation is you can't do it. You will not be perfect. Your thoughts are not perfect. Your heart is not pure. All of these things, you're going to fall short. And so while I raise expectations that we got to be better, I'm also raising grace at every other level because no one gets this just right. And so when you fail, you got grace, but it doesn't mean you don't try. Here's the thing. All religion tries to cook rules to suit people. Every religion in the world, what, what people do is they cook their own rules up to suit themselves and their own tastes and their own likes and their own desires. What Jesus is doing is he's setting up that, that rules aren't the issue anymore. Jesus is taking all the rules and he's blowing them out and he goes, that's not it anymore. The issue is not rules, it's people. People are the issue. So he goes, we have a people problem and it's going to take a person to be the solution. So let's get back to lust. You were ready. You, I heard you just telling, please get back to lust. Tell, tell us more about that. What Jesus is not saying here. So let's get uh, uh, out of the way what he's not saying. In our culture, when we hear lust, we think generally related to a certain uh, form of desire. And the, the word Jesus uses here, epithumia, is a Greek word that is used 62 times in the New Testament. And only twice, not, this is not one of them, only twice is it used in any way directly related to sexual desire. What he's using it as, it just means inordinate desire or over-desire. Think of it as over-desire. And he's using this word to, and he's using an illustration. If you look at someone and you desire them, you over-desire them, this is a problem. And we're going to get into why that's a problem. But he's just using a simple illustration to go, look, epithumia is just an over-desire. That you look and you say, I have too much of a desire. I have too strong of a desire. I've elevated a desire above where it belongs in the right order of things. It's disordered desire. So rather than making sex, which is something God created and ordained in its right context, is this beautiful, wonderful thing that was created and God said was good. And rather than making that evil and shameful and poisonous for our culture, let's, let's agree we're going to take that off the table and go, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is something wildly different. It's this over-desire that infects every part of our life. And so to just leave it in one really thin slice isn't doing what Jesus is saying justice. You ever hear people say they have a lust for life or someone, oh, they got a real lust for life. What does that mean about that person? It means they have a, they seem to be those people that kind of wring every ounce of goodness out of life. They just, their chief desire is to get the best of every day and all of every day. They never sleep. They're on vacation all the time. Wonderlust, you hear that term. People who just, they love to travel. They, I live to go and explore. It's an inordinate desire for something. The problem is when we take a good thing and we create a God-like place for it in our lives. And then it begins to drive us. Then it begins to control us. Then you feel like you need it to become whole. And so when we hear the word lust today, I just want you to hear inordinate desire or over-desire. So where else does that apply? It applies to material things. You have an inordinate desire for material things, an inordinate desire for money or physical intimacy or approval or revenge. There's so many areas of our lives where we look around and we go, yeah, 
that feels disordered to me, if I'm really honest about it. That, shouldn't, that probably shouldn't be this high on the priority list. So Jesus says, if you look at someone lustfully, the problem is inordinate desire. It's, it's disordered. It's misplaced. And usually it's because you're not considering the object of your desire as God's created child. So in Jesus' example, when this man looks at this woman, this theoretical scenario he sets up, the issue here, the problem is that this, this woman has been made into an object and is not being looked at as one of God's created children with complexity and value and meaning. She's being looked at as an object. It's just a, a sense of over-desire. Lust is essentially, I would say, the reduction of people. And we'll put it on the screen. Lust is essentially the reduction of people to objects that serve our desires. So when you wanted to find that in the future, lust is essentially the reduction of people to objects that serve our desires. And you can do that in any number of ways in any number of avenues. Let me explain it this way. My wife does not like Brussels sprouts. Anybody join her? Who is, who's in the I don't like Brussels sprouts crowd? Some hands? Dwayne has his hand way up. All right. I got her to love them. I'm a magician. Let me tell you how. So she does not like Brussels sprouts. I tried many times. I sliced them in half, a little bit of olive oil, sea salt into the oven, roast them. They're beautiful. They come out. They smell incredible. You, they got a little crunch to them, that little bit of char on the outside. And she would just go, it smells terrible. It tastes terrible. I don't know why we do this to ourselves. And I said, I really like Brussels sprouts. We're going to have to fix this. So here we are in uh, northwest Ohio. We're not far from the cherry capital of the world. And I got into cherry juice, like tart cherry juice. This became a thing. I get into little cooking things, and I got into tart cherry juice. And I was looking up all the different things you could do with tart cherry juice. And then fate had its way with me, and I stumbled across a recipe for a tart cherry reduction to be placed on Brussels sprouts. And I thought, oh, what is this you say? It's tart cherry juice, a little bit of brown sugar, a little bit of sriracha. You put that in a big pot, and then you just boil it, and you stir it, and you boil it, and you stir it, and you boil it. And what you are doing is you are boiling off all of the liquid. And so this liquid, this 25 ounces of liquid with a little bit of sriracha and sugar in it begins to become less and less, and it gets thicker and thicker. And then when you're done, you pull it off the heat, and it's like a syrup. And what we've done is we've boiled out all of the liquid, and what we've left is, is just the sweetness. We've boiled off everything but the one thing we wanted, the sweetness. It's got a little bit of a kick because of the sriracha. It's a little bit tart because it's perfect. And so I pull the Brussels sprouts out and I drizzle this tart cherry reduction all over them. And then she goes, oh, Brussels sprouts. I said, just try. And she tried them and she goes, you're bringing these to every Christmas party we go to. These are incredible. She still doesn't like Brussels sprouts, but I think she likes the tart cherry sauce. But what is it? What did I do? I took some complex things and I reduced them to the one thing I wanted out of them. I took three complex things, and I reduced them simply for their sweetness. And then I used that to my desire, which was to get my wife to want Brussels sprouts. I reduced complex things into something simple. So think about Jesus' command in that light. When we boil down the complexity of another person to serve our desires, we reduce them. We make them less. When we boil down a complex soul to a one-note presentation to serve our agendas, we've attempted to use them for money or for status, for sex, for approval, for whatever it is we're after. We reduce them. And the sin here, the sin is that we've corrupted creation, that God did not create them to be a one-note presentation. God created them to be this wildly complex carrier of his image. God creates sons and daughters and releases us into the world to carry his image 
And when you and I look at somebody and we reduce them to just the way that they can help us get ahead, we've taken all their complexity and we've, we've made them an object. Which is why I say lust is essentially the reduction of people to objects that serve our desires. Objects. This term we use a lot in our culture today, objectification. We've, we've made somebody an object. We've objectified them. Which is making a living, breathing soul into a tool for our advancement of our desire, our agenda. How do we get there? Objectification happens when you have an affection for your desires that's greater than your affection for other people. That's all that is. How do we get to a place of objectification of other people? It's because my desires I hold above my care for the other person. My desire wins every time. So this, if this is what lust is, this is what enabled slavery to thrive. The desire for profit over the recognition of their God-created design. This is what enables sex trafficking to thrive today. The desire for profit, gratification over human dignity. This is what enables pornography to thrive. This is what enables sin to thrive throughout our world. When we reduce mothers and sisters and brothers and sons and daughters and we reduce somebody's heartbreaking life that led them to a dark place, we reduce that to entertainment to serve a secret desire. When we replace God's design with our desires, evil happens. This is what we see when we look around the world. In any place you see it, what you see is we've taken God's design and we've reduced it to serve our desires and you go, somehow that didn't go well. It never does. And so this objectification, this lustful objectification is everywhere. And so when you go to eat and the waiter is waiting on you at, at the restaurant, you have every opportunity to reduce that person to an object that feeds your lust to be served like a king or queen. Your kid's soccer coach, you can reduce them to an object that feeds your lust for status. Just play my kid. He's great. You have a teammate, and you can reduce them to an object that feeds your lust for glory. And if they would just do their job, I'd look better. People would see me if they would just, even your spouse. This is a tough one. Because we usually think of this, and when we hear objectification, we hear lust, we hear all these things we're thinking about. Eyes roaming all over the place, but we don't think about the way it happens in our home. If we're not careful, we can reduce our spouse, we can reduce our children into objects that feed our lust for gratification in any number of ways. This is super clear on the t-ball field where the parent has objectified their child and is living vicariously through their wins and losses. And when, when mom or dad's just a little too into it, you're like, man, why are you so invested in this? Oh, you, were, you didn't make the senior team when you were in high school, so you're, okay, I got it. And so what you've done is objectified your child to serve your desire for some glory. What you do in your home, your spouse who's there to love you thick and thin, it's this complex relationship. When we reduce them to meet our needs in any area we have, pick any category, when we reduce them for our security or sensuality or whatever it is, we can objectify even the people we love the most. We reduce them. Lust reduces the sacred nature of the people in our lives in order to make sacred the disordered desires of our lives. I'll say it again. Lust reduces the sacred nature of the people in our lives, the God-created, God-breathed nature of humanity. It reduces the sacred nature of the people in our lives in order to make sacred the disordered desires of our lives, in order to create gods out of things that were never intended to be gods. In our souls, we know when life is disordered. We know when we have it mixed up because there isn't peace. There's not peace in that area. And so we yearn for peace. We self-help our way to peace. We counsel our way to peace. We try anything we can get to find peace. 
And what scripture would tell us is we are living disordered lives. And so the lack of peace is supposed to be a flag that raises up inside of your soul that goes, there's something disordered here. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, God hasn't invited us into a disorderly, unkempt life. He hasn't invited us into disordered desire, but into something holy and beautiful, as beautiful on the inside as the outside. That thing we desire for people to look at us and approve and affirm our lives, he says, Paul says, that's what God desires for you, but bigger than what you think. He desires for that on your inside as well. So the question becomes, how do we get there? Paul has the answer for that. He says in the book of Romans, Paul writes, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed because the society says, do this, chase that. It's all good. Don't worry. Because culture will tell you, just chase yours, live your truth, do your thing. You do you. Scripture says, how'd that end up for you? The false promises of the world, the false promises of religion. Scripture says, don't be conformed to those things. Instead, be transformed. New heart, new mind. Remember when I said that the eyes in the story Jesus is telling in this sermon, the eyes represent more than just eyes. He's not saying gouge your eyes out. The eyes represent the heart and mind, which are sort of one and the same within the body in in the the Hebrew worldview. And he's saying, so your eye represents heart and mind. And so what do you do when your eye causes you to stumble? He says, you gouge it out. So what do you do when your heart and your mind are the source of your stumbling, when it is what is in you that is the source of your stumbling? He says, you gouge it out. What we need, according to Jesus, is inside-out renewal greater than new rules, greater than better behavior, better than trying hard. None of that stuff's going to get there. In December, we went to my wife's staff Christmas party, and they were having it at a 150-year-old house in Maumee. Beautiful house. A lot, of, a lot of old things are kind of beautiful. They're stately. They have this craftsmanship to them. We, we see those things. We long for those things. There's something about it that just looks like it was built really well. I remember walking up to it, though, knowing it was a 150-year-old house, and, and anybody who's ever been in anything 150 years old knows that that comes with some wear and tear. So I'm thinking as I'm walking up, it looks really great on the outside, nice coat of paint, nice shrubbery, all very nice. But I'm waiting for the inside to crack ceiling, and, and the walls are a little crooked, and the floors are given, and, and everything's worn, and it's just a little bit faded. I'm ready for that. We walked in, and it did not conform to my expectations. We walked in and I was like speechless, stunned. My first step, I remember feeling, whoa, that's solid. That's not supposed to be solid. It's supposed to give and creak and there should be all, and it was solid. And I looked around and everything was sparkling and everything looked new and everything looked right. And I thought, what in the world is happening? It's a 150-year-old house. So we find the owners. I said, look, I got to ask you, what, how did you do this? Because this is not new, but this feels new. It it literally felt like brand new construction that had never been touched before inside of a shell. And he goes, oh, because we uh, built a brand new house inside of a shell. He says, we took a 150-year-old shell and we gutted it. He goes, we gutted everything down to the studs in every room. Wherever we didn't need studs, we took the studs out. And we just went down to the very basic frame and layout. It's like, we didn't just replace, this is not a flip. We didn't replace the floors. We went beyond that. We didn't just replace the subfloors. We went beyond that. The joists, yeah, that's where we went. We replaced everything. We made this house new from the inside out. 
And what I realized is curb appeal wasn't covering for a mess on the inside. The thing had integrity. The outside and the inside matched. It had been renewed entirely. And something in that was profound to me because that's the same thing that Jesus is, is offering us and challenging us to. That you and I are no different. We have the opportunity to create curb appeal in our lives. Behave a little better, show it off a little nicer. Plant some shrubbery in the front of our life and hope people just think better of us. And we can still have the inside falling apart and still have that disordered lack of peace in our souls. And Jesus said that life, religious life, will never satisfy. Which is why he's undoing religion. He's watching these people flailing. He goes, it doesn't work that way. You can lust over any other thing you want, but it's, it's not the point. The point is your life is disordered and your desires are disordered because your inside is rotting while you're trying to fix up the outside. It requires a whole life renewal if we want to live in something as beautiful on the inside as outside, like Paul said. The design was that it would be whole and matched. What would it feel like to walk into a room without the guilt and shame of knowing that we're all shamefully guilty? Of objectifying even those we love the most at times. Jesus offers renewal, and it's not through religion. He says it's through relationship alone. What makes Jesus different than every other world religion as he's undoing religion of his own people. What makes Jesus different is he said it isn't in any religious system. It isn't in any system of rules. It isn't in any of that. It's only in relationship. Because every other system says you have to do these things. Jesus looks at his people and he says it isn't about what you do. It's what I plan to do for you. So you and I sit here and it isn't about what you do that makes you a Christian. It's what was done for you and your willingness to accept it. Jesus saw sin and saw what needed to be done. First, our sins had to be paid for, which is a a strange thought because we think of them as internal things that that doesn't hurt anybody. It's just my deal. If you walked outside after the fam jam and you had your fun on the slip and slides there and you had your fun at the food trucks and you come out to your car and your your window's smashed in and there's a note that says, I parked too close to you and I got a little aggressive with the door. Sorry about that. What would your next inclination be? Who is this? How do I find them? And how do they pay for that? right? Nobody goes, oh, the window. Oh, well, it was a fun day. Let's go home. You go, no, somebody's got to take care of that. Somebody has to pay for that. You can't just break the window. Why? What is that thing in you? Injustice was done. Someone broke my window. And when injustice is done, what has to happen? It has to be made just. When there is a, a problem, it has to be corrected. When there is a sin, it has to be paid for. When there's a crime, there has to be punishment. So every time we run into these things in our own normal daily lives, we recognize that this stuff requires a response. It has to be paid for. And so you would chase down the person so they would pay for the thing because you didn't do it. They did it, and they deserve to be punished. Jesus looks at you and I living in this world all imperfect, all sinning, all falling short, all with our own list of crimes on our little rap sheet. And Jesus goes, the shame of it is punishment is deserved. That our injustice as we walk through the world requires a response, that crime requires punishment. And so Jesus says, I will take that on for you. So I will, on your behalf, that's what the cross is. The cross is Jesus saying, I will take the punishment on your behalf. Only he lived a sinless life. He didn't actually owe anybody anything. So he became the sacrificial stand-in for all of us, the guilty. He was the one innocent one who took on the penalty of the guilty. Only he didn't stop there. His work on the cross erased our debt and our guilt. And on the third day, Scripture says he rose from the dead. Which means he not only eliminated death, he took the penalty for our sin that was leading you and I to certain death. 
He then goes back and he installs new life by raising from the dead. He says, it wasn't enough to just gut the house. It wasn't enough to just clean you up. It wasn't enough to just bail you out. I will restore you. And from the inside out, Jesus rebuilds us and rebuilds the house and he invites us to live in it. You and I are the 150-year-old house that needs a lot of work. And religion says, fix up the shrubbery, paint the outside, call it a day. Jesus says, follow me inside. Watch what I can do. He says, yeah, the outside, we'll take care of that. But first, we're going to gut the inside. And I'm going to take on the penalty. I'm going to pay for it. I got you. And I'm going to rebuild it. And that's where you want to live. You want to live following me. You want to live with my way. And when you live in my way, you live in the renewed house that I came to bring you. He invites us to follow him. Jesus says, believe in me and you'll share in my eternal life. Believe in me and you live in that renewed house. So in Jesus, you're invited into a new life. Like Paul said, a beautiful and a holy transformed life. The life that awaits us is a life of renewal. It's the clearing out. It's the gutting of the habits and the heartaches and the hurts that we carry every day. Jesus' invitation is that you might walk away from disordered desire. Walk away from that lack of peace that goes, man, there is something not right in my life. Walk away from the sin and the shame and the pain. Jesus is offering a chance for each and every one of us to be rebuilt and renewed and remade and restored. Because you are created with a purpose by a God who loves you. You are created and designed for a purpose on this planet to do a thing, to be a person, to be in right relationship with God not to be broken, not to lack peace, not to be shamed, not to be none of those things. You are created to live in right relationship with God. And that's the invitation. Your restoration brings you back into that creation set. What did I say sin was? It's just corrupting creation. And Jesus says, I will undo that and I will bring creation back to wholeness, back to peace. I will create it again into something beautiful. And Jesus came to create something inside of each of us something holy and beautiful, so the inside might match those desires we have for the outside. He's invited us into life with him, and it is on offer for you today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are a gracious God. Lord, I consider the wreckage of my own life, the consequences of uh, all the wayward days I live, Father, it is unfathomable to me that all of the wear and tear I have put on is wiped away by your Son. And yet, Lord, I believe that. Your Spirit testifies to that, that we are made new in you, that we are given new hope and new life, that we are given eternity to enjoy our relationship with you. And even though at times, God, it feels unbelievable I sit amongst brothers and sisters that would nod and say, no, it's true. That my life is a testimony, Father, not of my perfection and my ability to follow the right rules, but God, you sent Jesus to do everything, to take care of all of it. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that uh, you would find me personally resting in you and what you've done, not in the rules and the religion, but Lord, I would rest in you that I would trust you to continue to renew me in my days. And Father, that us as a community, that we would be in that same place. Maybe those who've been following you for a long time and find themselves off the path of life. Lord, I pray this would be a comeback day. A day when we would uh, return to the renewed house. 
we would return to the truth, to the life of integrity you've called us to. Father, to relationship. For those in this room that don't know that relationship, Lord, my sincere prayer Lord, let no one leave this place lacking that peace, wholeness. Father, let no one leave this place to go back out into a disordered life. So Lord, by your Spirit, make us right. Find us following you. Find us asking new questions, seeking new paths. But ultimately, Lord, find us in you, in relationship with you through Jesus. Lord, we are grateful for your presence in this place, for your word and your truth that brings life to our days. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.